0: all right welcome back everybody to time to be frank uh today we have a new uh awesome guest on today kirk jones uh he's a, he's a awesome dude dude i like talking about history with uh dude i've known for a few years been in uh, same church together so without further ado we're gonna do a uh just a discussion on kind of uh you know general ideas about world war one what caused it uh what was on the on the line so uh Thanks for tuning in, and uh, yeah. All right, so Kurt, um, glad to have you on today. Um, glad to be on. Awesome. Well, uh, just to kind of get things started, I guess what what would you paint as the picture that that kind of ignited World War One? Like, what what do you sure. think were the things going on? They kind of led to the start of of the Great War.
1: Sure. All right. So I'm going to back up with two things real quick before we even get into that. Sounds good. So first and foremost, I want to make clear, this is certainly a passion of mine, but I'm not an expert. Um, So there are three sources that I would recommend for anybody that wants to learn more. Uh, If you're a podcast guy, Dan Carlins, uh, he has Hardcore History podcast, his Blueprint for Armageddon, does a really really good job getting into all of this he's gonna be a lot better source than I blueprint for
0: Armageddon is that like a series it's episodes? a series
1: he does yeah okay. it's uh, great for car trips for it's like 14 hours all told so like not short um, in addition to that I brought two books with me today I don't know if we'll get into them at all uh, if you're looking for a good high-level overview of the entire war Hugh Strawn's The First World War is probably the best book for that um, and so it's like it's a pretty quick read it's written in a punchy style but it's solid history. If you want more of a deep dive into the causes of World War One and an understanding of how the world was when it started uh, Max Hastings Catastrophe 1914 which is the other book I brought with me is also really good. I'd recommend Max Hastings as a historian in general. He's um, uh, been writing I think for like 40 or 50 years but what he does a very very good job i think balancing the line between like traditional history which would be history before uh, like the late 20th century and then revisionist history uh, both i think have problems and because he's writing with a more modern take i think he drops down the line between the two very very well huh. uh, and, and being able to kind of critique both sides Both, you know so traditionally we've understood x well it seems like it's more y or you know revisionist or more modern historians might say z but actually think you know it, it's more y uh, so the second thing that I'll say, besides the fact that I'm, I'm not an expert, I'm just a, a passionate guy with a little bit of a background in history. You're a history
0: major. Yes. Who, who has liked studying World War One and has developed opinions on yes, it.
1: Yes, exactly. Uh, the second thing I'll say is that, in my opinion, you cannot take World War I and World War Two as separate conflicts. I see them as a continuation of the same conflict. So, in a lot of ways, I would would see... The causes and, and consequences of World War One is playing directly into what you could think of as a long European war with a twenty-year break uh, in, in between. So, well, that's a long halftime. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So you had asked why? Why did we get World War One?
0: Like, what were the what were the causes going into it? That sure. Like that?
1: So, in order to understand World War One, you kind of need to understand the second half of the nineteenth century. And so at that period you have an ascendant Britain, uh, you know, as the empire on which the sun never sets, who had colonial holdings around the world. You had a very strongly positioned France that had colonial holdings around the world, you had you know, and then other countries that were all trying to get, get in on this. And so throughout the second half of, of the eighteen hundreds, you had a series of small worlds, small wars around the world. All dealing with colonial powers vying for land, for control, uh, for prestige, and during that period, Germany, who was kind of, uh, you know, was not a unified country, it was it was a collection of smaller countries until um, the second half of the 1800s, felt like a latecomer to that game, and so a lot of what they were looking to do on the national stage was how can we have the prestige the power and the access to resources that that our neighbors france britain uh, russia do elsewhere and so in the mix of that too you have these two older uh, kind of doddering by this point empires so there's the ottoman empire whose heyday you know would have been a few hundred years before that and then you have the austro-hungarian empire both of which recognize that they're in decline, recognize that they're problems, and are looking for a chance, you know, to to, to try and reclaim their former glory and their former influence. And the, the Ottoman stage.
0: Empire, to clarify, is like more of a, a Muslim-based like empire. Is it out of Turk? Like kind of modern-day Turkey? Is mm-hmm. that kind of where it's based?
1: Yeah. So Constantinople, if I remember correctly, would have been like you know the the capital of the ottoman empire but their influence extended down into arabia and into what would be like modern-day iraq and iran okay um so and this is what what i can't remember um but like them persia when you think of you know the 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 glory days of, of those empires and yes they were muslim uh but they would not have been as radical as what you would think of, and and some of the, um, some of the parts of the Middle East today.
0: They're they're different than the modern like Islamic State and like ISIS and and other countries today. they because there's probably more. I mean, each of those countries are more independent, and movements are more independent and operating. This is kind of a a more bigger unit. The Ottoman yes. Empire is more of like a. A strong force in the world and it's unified in kind of like one country or movement rather than all these, you know, smaller Islamic countries are
1: in the Middle East. Certainly. And the one thing that I also want to make clear is that the way that the people in each of these empires, you know, uh, in each of these colonial powers, the way that they saw the world and the way that they understood each other was very, very different. Than how we see and understand the world today, mm-hmm. and so it's it can sometimes be hard to go back and read things that were written then, or to listen to these people talk because it sounds very very racist, it sounds very very you know elitist, um, and, and certainly there were real problems with these empires, and some of those you know those beliefs, are what lead to the cracks that you see, that play into why World War One was fought how it was fought and, and you know what the consequences were that, that we still feel echoes of today
0: so in many ways it's what's brewing is this competitive nature between world powers to kind of dominate different um, places throughout the world where they they start taking over different countries yes and using their resources to build kind of a competitive uh, domi- dominant um, power that that more and more dominant power because they believe that their position, their view of the world is right, right? Exactly, exactly.
1: And so, yeah, so you had people that, you had people, I'm using loosely, so you had nations that felt slighted, you had nations that were trying to hold on to their power, you had nations that felt like they were in a good place but were wanting to solidify. So, uh, at the end of the 19th century, German, the the people in, in power there, were basically like how how can we gain power and make sure that we are real players on the world stage because they felt like this is what we deserve and so they came up um, with a a series of plans especially into the early 1900s where they're like this is how we would perpetrate a European land war with the goal basically of, of forcing at least France but also you know Britain if they could and Russia Uh, into a position where they could negotiate for better colonial holdings for more influence on the European continent. And the crux of that plan, which will be important later when we're discussing this, uh, was the the Schlieffen plan, named for the the guy that came up with it, von Schlieffen. And How how a lot of those things work, right? Exactly, exactly. (laughs) Uh, And so this was an idea for an aggressive push through northern France to try and, and uh, basically take Paris not with the goal of occupying France per se but with the goal of forcing uh, the rest of the Western powers would become the Triple Entente to concede to, to what Germany wanted and so by the time we get to the summer of 1914 you have a Germany that is looking for any excuse for war you have an Austria-Hungary who's looking for any excuse for war, but specifically with Serbia to try and reassert, you know, their influence in uh, the the Balkan states and in, in Eastern Europe. You have a Russia where there are real cracks already forming in that empire, who's a little bit hesitant to go to war.
0: Well, there. So to to add some sure. context to that, I mean, Russia is it, like in nineteen oh five, like completely went. Like I mean, a a broad, large amount of people went on strike and yes. caused the Tsar, Nicholas I to in, enact basically what we would call a Congress or like a Parliament type thing called the Zemsva, which was basically a phony thing, um, but it was a it was a move he was making to basically alleviate the pressures of the people who were basically saying that his god-given rule of the kingdom um is is no more like like really what they accept because they're seeing the flaws in his rule um he had just lost a war in 1904 to uh i mean lost or almost tied a war with japan and yes the, the russo japanese war and so he they lost a lot of their navy at that point in time um, basically, floating them from uh, Russia, like uh, on the European side, all the way around Europe and Africa uh, and Asia, to go to Japan to get just absolutely slaughtered. Mm-hmm. So he's losing a lot of the trust of the the Russian people at this point in time. There's a lot of these revolutionaries mm-hmm. who are gaining steam, whether it's the Bolsheviks like Vladimir Lenin, um, the the SR. So like. Um, more just general socialist but also like they want to be like more agricultural socialist movement that is big there and then also the Mensheviks which is a division between the communist party and Russia at the time led by more like a Julius Martov versus like a Vladimir Lenin so there's all these all these revolutionaries but they're all unified at this point in time in the revolution to some degree in taking down the czar who is losing control and losing trust of the people. And so when they create that congressional, you know, kind of phony congressional thing called the Zemstva, um, as it becomes more and more apparent between 1905 and 1917 that this is not actually the the, the way that the people are going to get their voice heard, right? the revolution becomes more and more growing to the point where people are like, the czar is still just making this this phony play to say like to placate the people but he's not really giving the power that we we think he doesn't deserve or um is not doing well with and so that that's leading to this rising tension in russia where um the the distrust of the government is is very high as they're entering into world war one yes
1: exactly um, and I, I'm glad that you brought up the Russo-Japanese War, because that was a shock to the world that a, a uh, westernized power could be defeated by, you know, in, in uh, what was seen as an, an Asian force. Yeah. And this period, so Japan played a not insignificant role in World War I, but World War I is very, very important for Japan uh, for a couple reasons. So one, it validates, you know, their place on the world stage. Two, in the, the treaties after World One, they felt very slighted uh, for what they did. But three, you know, you got to remember, it's been less than 50 years since the start of the Meiji Restoration in Japan. So they when they fought Russia in, in 1904, uh, they were only about 40 some odd years into their modernization, you know their push for that, the, the Meiji Restoration, which started in 1868. And so for them to beat a long-standing Western power mm-hmm. was a, a big validation for them that we are on the right track. And that's where you begin to see the underpinnings of what would become Imperial Japan um, and, and would lead to you know the reasons that they perpetrated the conflict uh, in, in, in 1937 to 1945, World War II. Mm-hmm. So, but we can talk about that later. Sounds good. From a strategic standpoint, the Western powers took all the wrong lessons uh, from the Russo-Japanese War, and so the, how the Japanese beat the Russians, um, one of the major tactics was human wave attacks against machine gun positions, and, and it worked. And so as we're going again, in the summer of 1914, as, as we're moving into these 19th century powers fighting with 20th century weapons, there's not an understanding of the devastation that they can cause. And so there's this belief that persists through really 1917 that if you get enough men with with enough, uh, you know, uh, écran, as the French would say, you know, enough spirit, they can take, the, you know, these positions. And that's where you see these mass assaults uh, where guys are just getting butchered in the, the tens of thousands because it was believed, well, if we have enough guys with enough spirit, then, then we can actually push through. There wasn't an understanding of, of the weapons that they were fighting with um and going back to russia you know war puts pressure on any society that is a belligerent uh and so when you already have you know this tinderbox that is pre-revolutionary russia yeah you know you start throwing and again who's fighting these wars the officers would would all be guys that are are mostly officers by dint of their name not necessarily necessarily because they're good officers and that's true of all of the great powers that are fighting it kind in... of like
0: lords and, and exactly no, no, yeah it's, it's it's more of like a, a government position uh, like a autocratic position uh, that's my, my government given position by birth rather than a earned position through uh, character and proven like knowledge and strength of military skills
1: right and i mean also too there has not been a large scale european land war since napoleon over a hundred years beforehand and you know the the most recent before world one would have been the uh, the franco-prussian war in the 1870s where the prussians beat france which is you know how germany gained control of the alsace lorraine region which is, is I been mean, hotly contested through all the big european land wars because it's a a cultural mix of French and German. The people there at the time spoke a mix of French and German. Both Germany and France felt like these are our people, this is our land.
0: Well like Belgium Belgium has like that mix of German and French too, right? Where
1: I know less about Belgian culture than I should to yeah, be I've honest. I've done
0: I've done one project where I did a bunch of research on mm. Belgium and I think there's like a section mm. that speaks like a Flemish. Maybe it's maybe it's it's definitely part French, anyway. Yeah, that back, sounds
1: yeah. right. But you're out of you're out of yeah, my area yeah, of expertise. I'm a little,
0: so a little out of my own. What
1: um, I what I will say about Belgium at this time, though, is uh, they had built a series of fortifications. Okay, so again, when you think of weapons have modernized at this point faster than anybody really is comprehended, and because there hasn't been a large scale conflict, we have these you know these weapons lying around. That nobody's ever really used in a big way. But they have totally changed the way that you build fortifications. So, uh, in the old days when when you're fighting with bows and arrows and, and sticks and even, you know, things like trebuchets and crossbows, which were, were peak, you know, medieval weaponry, yeah, you could build a ten foot thick wall and be pretty safe. But when you start to introduce gunpowder suddenly your walls need to get thicker and thicker um and then by the 19th century when when they're firing you know the predecessors to like modern howitzers 75 millimeter guns it really doesn't matter how thick your walls are you're still going to be able to tear it down so that's where you got star fortresses uh which which were these huge earthen works uh that were designed to create you know lanes of fire and and to protect and so the um Oh man, now I can't remember if it was for World War One or World War Two. They got invaded both times, but the Belgians had had built these fortifications um, and, and used them to great effect uh, against the Germans. And I know that go, so.
0: that one of the beginning points of World War One is is the Germans are looking to invade France. Yes, and they go through Belgium. Yes, and that is partially what. Uh, then causes the English to, to get involved because the Belgian, uh, Belgium is like not, it's like Switzerland in World War II, it's not a part of the war, it's a neutral territory, but when the German army is going through a neutral territory, it's like you're putting other people who are not part of the war at risk, yeah. and so that like causes other powers to be like more like, holy shit, like we need to get involved.
1: Yeah, so let's get into that. So it's July 1914. Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife are visiting um, Sarajevo?
0: That sounds right.
1: I think it's Sarajevo. Um, There were Serbian nationalists, the Black Hand, uh, who were seeking independence from the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And so Gavrilo Princip, who's a part of this organization, his buddies set up just absolutely... Blackly humorous, uh, uh, I would say, attempts to try and assassinate the archduke, yeah. which in itself is misguided because the archduke was probably the closest thing that they had to a, to an ally in terms of pushing for you know Serbian uh, independence from the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Huh. Uh, there were a couple attempts on that fateful day to try and kill him with bombs that you know misfired or that blew up, uh, but but missed him, and it was really by accident uh, that Gavrilo Princip ended up face-to-face with the Archduke and his, his wife, uh, and so he manages to shoot both of them. He then is, is captured and is tried by Serbia. Which
0: this is kind of similar to what's portrayed in the new movie, The King's Man. Yes. Where that character, now mm-hmm. uh, the organization is is maybe less real of like... Not you know, real this, at all, but yeah. Well, yeah. But but the guy is sitting there, he throws a bomb at... at uh, ferdin or Franz Ferdinand and it and it doesn't work, but then like you know, maybe like a couple hours later, he's just sitting there and he sees them roll past on a carriage, and he's like, well i I'm, I'm here to assassinate them, let me just shoot them in the face yeah,
1: it's <laughs> the event. I can't remember if that's exactly how I played it, but it was that serendipitous. Yeah. I mean, it, it was like, oh, I failed. I didn't manage to assassinate him. And then, oh, there they go. So, <clears throat> Aust- the Austro-Hungarian Empire was not a big fan of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand. Uh, he was, was kind of the black sheep of the family, in part because he'd, he'd married what they viewed as a commoner. Um,
0: Which, that's a big no-no in, like, yeah. royal families. Like, if you marry... Somebody who's not also royal, yep. Then you're basically undermining your
1: your, your ability power. to have power. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So, but this is the excuse the Austro-Hungarian Empire has been looking forward to go after Serbia, and so they make a series of demands on Serbia that, in essence, if Serbia agreed to them, would violate Serbia's sovereignty as a as a sovereign nation. And that's because, in part, they want influence over Serbia. And so they're, you know, at over 100 years on now, we can't say for sure what anybody's motives were. But it certainly seems like what the Austro-Hungarian Empire is doing is trying to back Serbia into a corner where they can't possibly say yes. And then Austro-Hungary has, has a fig leaf to say, well, we're going to invade, you know, basically to... Uh, in retaliation for your one of your guys killing one of our. When you say a fig leaves.
0: leaf, what do you mean? Uh,
1: it's it's a a thin excuse, you know. But you see, the fig leaf, uh, again comes from the the telling of Adam and Eve. You okay. know, they cover themselves in fig leaves, but everybody knows, you know, it's obvious that, that something just, is wrong. Yeah. And it doesn't actually solve the problem, and so that expression through the years has turned into. It's it's a thin excuse for whatever is actually going on. Okay. And that is obvious to everybody that it's like this isn't you don't actually believe this or think this solves the problem. You are using this as as an excuse, you know, to, to do what you want to do. Okay. Um so the Austro Hungarian Empire is tied in with Germany. So there's a series of treaties, if I remember correctly, between the two of them. Germany is like, yes, this is the opportunity that we have been looking for, you know, to perpetrate a European land war to try and, uh, and, and accomplish our goals.
0: Gain more power, basically. Yes, in, and influence. In the colonial competition.
1: And in the European continent, yes. Um, and the other thing to remember, too, is at this time, Germany was not alone and the people of germany weren't alone in thinking that war was a legitimate means to accomplish foreign policy basically and this is because you know up really to this point wars would be fought on neutral ground with weapons that had limited ability to cause widespread damage they were fought mostly among soldiers and so you think you know just a not even 150 years before during the American Revolution, you were firing uh, smoothbore flintlock or matchlock muskets, things that, you know, the reasons you would line up in in ranks and shoot at each other wasn't just because it was chivalrous, it was in part because these weapons were, were inaccurate. Yeah. And so it's like you could stand 50 or 60 yards away from somebody, shoot your gun, and it might, you know, may not go off, might misfire, it's not terribly accurate, so that musket ball may not even go where you want it to go and that's the type of war that that people are envisioning um what europe is not thinking about is the american revolution which was the beginning of of a lot of what would become the weapons used in world war one being fought with and the american revolution was a bloodbath because you were shooting high, highly accurate highly reliable weapons at each other over relatively short distances
0: we talk about the American Revolution or the the, the civil, civil American War. Civil War. American Sorry, civil War.
1: Okay. yes, the American Civil War. Which, okay. Yeah. So a little. Which is
0: 1860, the 1860s... Yes. Uh, about a hundred, or uh, a little bit, a little bit less than a hundred years after the Revolutionary. War.
1: Exactly. And so in the eighteen sixties, this is where you now have like rifling is common. They're firing rifled muskets with conical bullets. Um, it's the beginning of repeating rifles, which which really took started a little bit after of the american civil war and so by the time we get into world war one guys are no longer shooting each other with slow firing muzzle loading weapons
0: where they have to reload like takes a minute exactly like you know your your reload is much quicker
1: now they're shooting yeah breech loading cartridge weapons where even Even if it's not an automatic weapon, like machine guns are now a thing, uh, it's still, you know, your bolt-action rifle, you can put five shots out in a matter of seconds. Yeah. As opposed to, you know, a a good uh, soldier in the American Civil War was, I believe, six shots a minute, so shot every ten seconds. Um, So because of this misunderstanding, because just nobody knew the power of the weapons at play, the idea that, oh, we can fight a, a war... To forward our foreign policy and it won't be that costly was pretty pretty widely accepted and certainly there were people that said no 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 you know war is terrible we can't uh, and even people in Germany that were like the cost of us fighting a war would be greater than any benefit that we could potentially gain even if we won who um, would have been laughed at
0: so the German Kaiser because he's the, he's the person in charge. He's Wilhelm. He, yeah, Kaiser Wil- <laughs> Wilhelm. Uh he it, he's basically like an autocrat, is that right? I mean, he's like the mm-hmm. solely in charge of the country or is there cuz like, you know, at this at this point, you know, America's operating under like a democratic republic. Yep. There there's different types of governments, but a lot of, you know, like Russia is still operating under a czar like an absolute monarch basically They're an empire. Yeah. So so but the Kaiser would be much more similar to like a czar than he would be to like the president of the United yes, States. Yes, right? exactly.
1: Um and, and Germany in a lot of ways really was ruled by its military. Okay. Uh and and that um Yes. Yeah. And so that, you know, they obviously th- were some drawbacks to that. So <clears throat> Austria, Austria-Hungary has made demands of Serbia. Serbia actually acquiesces to more than anybody expected them to. Um, France, if I remember correctly, had it, or excuse me. Oh, and this is, it's the Tangled Alliances, for those of you, if you, you remember from your high school history courses, and I even have trouble keeping them straight. I believe Serbia had a treaty with France, who had a treaty with Russia?
0: Russia was definitely tied in through France because um, a lot of the uh, Russian economy was based on loans from the French banks. Sure. So I know that Russia was brought into it because they were pretty strong allies with France at this point because the French banks basically housed their economy, and I'm pretty sure, like you were saying, Serbia drew the Russians in or drew the French in through their you know uh, alliance of some sort
1: right exactly and then France and Britain obviously at this point are pretty close as well
0: which seems crazy in the scope of world history but
1: yeah (laughs) it's I mean if you think about you know 100 years before the last major European land war fought before this one was Britain and France duking it out under Napoleon and now yeah by the early 1900s they're pretty buddy buddy yeah um And so through July, you have Austria-Hungary refusing to back down. Serbia acquiesces to a lot, but basically says, we're not going to let you do these things because it functionally would have given Austria-Hungary control of the Serbian government. they are like, no, we're, we're an independent nation. We, we will not allow you to do that, which is not unreasonable. Yeah. Austria-Hungary says, not good enough. We're going to invade. And that then starts to pull everybody else in. But behind the scenes, you know, you have guys in Austria-Hungary that see this as okay. If we get to take Serbia, that's a chance for us to to claim more land, to gain prestige, to gain influence in Europe. You have Germany, kind of pushing Austria-Hungary to invade because they're like, this then is an excuse for us to go to war. We're defending the Austro-Hungarian sovereignty, you know. But also, it's like okay, so France and Russia are going to come in. This gives us a chance to go after them as well. Mm-hmm. Now, something else to remember about Germany. So in the, the late nine, or excuse me, late eighteen hundreds, when they were like, We want to we think that a European conflict would be a way for us to achieve our foreign policy goals. They knew they weren't ready to take on France, Britain, Russia in a large scale war. So they embarked on this process of of you know militarization and build up. However, if I remember correctly their goals weren't actually until the late 1910s and early 1920s and so when the the german government starts and the german military starts pushing for you know war in 1914 there were a few guys that were like hey we're not ready like the navy's not totally there the army's good but like the, we're not sure we can do this and that's where you see in particular the eminence of the schlieffen plan Because the idea is, okay, if we get into conflict, we can push through Belgium into northern France and take Paris in less than a month. And so we don't need to worry about a protracted war. We don't need to worry about the British Navy. We don't need to worry about being blockaded uh, because the war will be over in a matter of weeks. Mm.
0: and how wrong could you be well i mean yeah if
1: but everybody thought this at the time going into this war you know everybody was like well you know either you know the german the the, um uh, the triple alliance germany austria-hungary and the ottomans were like we can win quickly and the triple entente britain france russia said we can win quickly and so there was nobody with the power to stop the war, or at least certainly not a majority thought this is going to turn into a protracted struggle that'll totally change the face of Europe mm-hmm. uh, and, and the world. To you know a, a lesser extent, it was believed this will be a brief conflict similar to something like the Franco-Prussian War or you know the other small wars that have been fought throughout the second half of the 19th century. Yeah. Um, so Austria the deadline that austria-hungary had given the serbians expires they invade uh serbia fights back way stronger than anybody expects germany in the name of defending you know their interests austria-hungary's interests invades belgium the invasion of if they had not invaded belgium because they they were very worried about bringing britain into the war because they knew Britain was a huge naval power. They had tremendous naval might, uh, and they they recognized that Britain could effectively blockade Germany, and they did for most of the war, because um, the German navy was not at a point yet where it could take on, you know, the the British dreadnoughts. <clears throat> so, the during this time in Britain was. A lot of the troubles with Northern, with, with Ireland, with Northern Ireland um, so this like the IRA. Uh, I can't remember if they existed yet, but yeah, basically it would become those people. Okay. And so Britain had no real desire. There was not a lot of popularity among the British populace to enter into another European land war because they're like we got our own problems that we need to figure out. And Britain really was on on the cusp of a civil war uh, over you know what to do in Ireland okay and it wasn't until germany invaded neutral belgium that the british public opinion shifted and they're like nope actually we need to do something about this um so germany invades belgium belgium puts up more of a fight than anybody really expected including the germans in france they expected so you know obviously all the powers have war stuff like this for years but they expected germany's main thrust to come through uh the more central part of the country and this is my geography is, is not as good as it should be or as it was when i was learning about all this uh so they massed their forces more uh along the central part of their border with germany okay and it's a freaking nightmare both sides don't do a great job commanding their troops again neither side are familiar with you know the lethality of the weapons with modern troop they're movements. they're
0: not used to fighting this kind of war yes because they've never fought this kind of war
1: exactly they're fighting with modern weapons but trying to do it in ways that aren't dissimilar from how napoleon would have fought his troops they
0: have a lot of uh written theory on war based on a hundred years ago the the weapons and the ways that war was done then. Exactly. But they're entering into a new era of war with that philosophy already like kind of ingrained in how they're approaching it.
1: Right. And it's it's bad. And remember too your, your officers are all this aristocracy uh, who may or may not really have much knowledge of or capability in it's leading troops like, in combat.
0: It's not like commanders coming from West Point where they Yes. They are given their role by their ability to um, learn, you know, warfare and learn shit like that. These people are given their roles based on how they were born into kind of like similar to lords and exactly. knights in the Middle Ages. Exactly. They're given their power through birthright.
1: Exactly. Well, I was believed that, you know, the, there was some kind of divine right. If you had prestige, then then you must deserve it, Was was just god-given the belief yeah and i mean it was quickly proven that no actually what matters is your capability as a leader as a strategist Tact, you know, exactly strategy, yeah those things so um so it's a nightmare in, in mid-france uh it's a nightmare of a different kind in belgium as germany comes through belgium and into northern france uh they meet a much smaller French force because France, you know, under uh, General Joffre was the, the French commander at the time. And history kind of goes back and forth on him. He very badly fought the first couple months of the war, he very well fought. Uh, the the next couple months after that of the war and and there are things about this man that certainly bear respect and there are things about this man both as a military commander and in his personal life uh, that certainly bear scorn um, so he also uh, more or less ruled france for the first like eight to twelve weeks of the war he was given by the french government pretty much unilateral power to do what he wanted which again was a two edged sword
0: what kind of government does france have at this
1: time they're a weird mix
0: because they've had, they've gone through so much revolution yeah. and shit like that at, S- in the last hundred years i know that
1: they have a president they also have a prime minister they're a I don't even remember what it's called. They're basically like a parliamentary presidency. Um, so they're they're a democracy uh, that kind of has aspects of the British po- parliamentarian system and the you know the American republicanism, uh, little R republicanism. Yeah. <clears throat> and you know I took several French classes and we learned about their system of government. And,
0: but it uh, changes a lot. Through like it does. the course of history, which makes it a bunch yeah. hard to follow. It's,
1: uh, yeah, that's also outside my area of expertise. No, so,
0: but some form of like similar democracy, but at this yes. point in time, as they enter in, into the war, the general is given a lot more power, yes, to, to rule in France because he, he needs the, the ability to kind of unilaterally move for France, yes, exactly,
1: exactly. Okay. Um, and so as Germany's pushing into northern France things are going like gangbusters for Germany. Uh, France is retreating, the British expeditionary forces in the north of France uh, led by Sir John French and he is a commander that um, you know very quickly found himself over his head. He was not suited for the type of war that he found himself in. He was a very old-world uh, military commander and he was thrown into a 20th century modern war. So, <clears throat> because he feels so outgunned and because he his view of the French is that they are cowards he <laughs> more or less refuses to stand and fight uh, and he's like from early August through uh, until he's finally replaced by Kitchener um, more or less re- refuses to take a stand and is just looking for ways to pull the British expeditionary Force back to Calais and, and send it back to Britain basically like let this be france's problem
0: he just doesn't want it to be there more yes but, but he's
1: kind of thrown into it at least at one point yes which causes a lot of problems because the french are looking to the british to fill a gap in their line so there are two major french uh i think it's french armies on one on either side of the british expeditionary force and so he uses the germans are coming west and south through northern france you know, you can picture from left to right a French army, the British, and then a French army, and the French are like, we need you to stand in the gap. But French keeps, French, the commander, Sir John French, keeps retreating the British expeditionary force, which leaves uh, what's called a salient, basically a, a bubble in between those two French armies. And so there, there are some significant actions that the British fight, um, uh, most notably, I think, at Malles. Uh, which is a rearguard action where they they end up in, in contact with Germany, but the French armies are bearing the brunt of this attack.
0: They're standing tall while the the British are mm. uh, are more retreating, yes. moving back the line, and that's becoming a problem for the French. Exactly, the France armies. Exactly,
1: uh, and and the French, you know. I command is basically asking sir john french this is where it gets really confusing because everybody's called french we'll say uh, john we'll do- yes are asking sir john to stand and he's like nah um and, and there are you know there are notable individual english commanders at this period uh in the expeditionary force there are notable units within the expeditionary force that, that really do uh comport themselves highly during this retreating action uh un- under germany but but overall it's not a good look for the bef
0: okay
1: so germany's pushing in <clears throat> um at the same time you know in, in eastern europe uh they have launched attacks also against russia and russia you know is mobilized they they have moved troops in as well this is the part of the war that i know a little bit less about um, but again, it's guys, military commanders that don't totally understand how to fight this type of war facing each other. And it, it just leads to frustration and, and, and dark hilarity on sides. And it got a lot of men killed.
0: So to kind of summarize where we're at, mm-hmm. Germany and Australia, uh, Austria-Hungary mm-hmm. are fighting a war on two fronts. They're yes. fighting going uh, east towards the Atlantic Ocean. Or west towards the Atlantic west, yep. Ocean. Sorry, um, they're fighting Germany and Britain, and then fighting uh, going east towards say the Pacific Ocean. They're fighting Russia. Yes, and Serbia.
1: And, and Serbia. Yep. And
0: And what what they believe is going, which what a lot of the sides believe is going to be a quick war. Mm-hmm. They they a lot of the sides think that they have. The military power which Russia going into this also like after getting weakened in the Russo-Japanese war in 1904 knew that they needed to build military power they were trying to do so but like you were describing with Germany they didn't think that they had built up enough power entering into the war yes like they they said if their goal was to have like a, a military built up by 1917 but this is 1914 it when the war is getting started Their, their Navy has been like very much hurt in the Russo-Japanese war. And so they're, but they are the Eastern front of this war. Yes. And Germany, so Germany and Austrian and Hungary forces are fighting on two fronts. They are fighting to aggressively, you know, push in both sides towards, um, you know, taking France and taking Russia and so their armies Their armies are divided in those pursuits.
1: Yes, and so and, and Russia actually also split their forces. Um, and and so you can you know there's some kind of armchair military historian debate about what if Russia had put all their forces into one or the other. Mm. So Russia has sent several divisions to fight Germany, and they've sent several divisions to back up Serbia uh, in fighting Austria Hungary. And it's kind of speculated that if they had put all their eggs in one basket, they could have rolled up one or the other and potentially led to an, an earlier conclusion of the war. Unfortunately, we'll, we'll never know. Oh, yeah. So, Didn't happen. Yes, exactly. Uh, so the east is more chaotic, whereas the west is starting, you know, the, the where the exact lines are, where the front is in the east, you know, they're, they're fighting through a lot of, um, it's like heavy terrain. Um Unclear. The Germans win a major victory at Tannenberg. Uh, they defeat the Russians, uh, which does force the Russians back a, l- a-, a ways. Um,
0: so one thing I want to want to sure ask you yeah, about yeah. as we're entering this point. So we're probably moving. Into late 1914,
1: we're into like September at this point, which is wild because it's only been going for about six weeks. Yeah, so, and a lot has happened. So we're
0: we're moving, I guess, into the latter half of 1914, but the the interesting thing, one interesting thing to me about three of the powers in this war is that uh, King George, who's who's the King of England, Tsar mm-hmm. uh, Nicholas the First, and Kaiser Wilhelm are all first cousins.
1: Yes. Thank you, Queen Victoria. Yeah. She basically gave birth to the 20th century, early 20th century aristocracy of Europe. And so, it,
0: it, as these rivalries are kind of brewing, how much do you think like this interpersonal dynamic of these these, you know, leaders has to play into kind of the the brewing war that's
1: coming or that that is building? Um
0: Because I think it's really interesting.
1: It's probably more than you would expect, but less than some would have you believe. Okay. Because it's like a lot of the dynamics behind what's going on, as much as these men were the head of their countries, um, they sometimes kind of got swept up in, in what other people wanted. You know, just so like... Britain, I think, in a lot of ways, King George felt like his hands were tied. And, I mean, by this point, they are... He is less directly in power. They're a it's parliamentary democracy. The, yeah. Yeah. So, the will of the people is what dictated Britain's actions to a certain degree. But
0: Kaiser Wilhelm is acting more as a... As a more directly in control. Directly in control. Yes. And, and Tsar Nicholas, it's similarly. More directly in control, But the yes. other interesting thing with Tsar Nicholas uh, in Russia is that he, so he's married to, uh, his wife, Alexandra mm-hmm. and his wife, Alexandra, it, um, they have a, um, they, they have four daughters first and then a son, Alexei. Mm-hmm. Yep. And Alexei is going to be the heir to the throne. To yes. The, the, the next czar.
1: He is the son. Yes. Is, yeah.
0: And interestingly, he has hemophilia. Mm-hmm. which is you know a, a dangerous like blood type disease yep and so he um at, at points in his early childhood is going through some like real health issues yes and at one at, at a couple points um the uh Tsarina, or uh, i might be saying that wrong but alexandra yes is basically like you know looking for help they are um russia is is in the this time tied to the Russian Orthodox Church. Like, that is mm-hmm. the the um, belief system that I- I- is there in Russia. And so, uh, there is some mystical, like, kind of Russian Orthodox priest uh, named Grigory Rasputin, mm-hmm. who, <coughs> who for some reason or another gains um, kind of an audience with, uh, with Alexandra and then um, begins helping them with Alexi and his hemophilia and potentially helps him uh, a couple points avoid death this um, helps gain it helps him gain the trust of the queen and the tsar yep. and the queen obviously you know your wife has a lot of uh, a lot of power over you no matter who you are like your wife says something you're you're going to tend to listen so as Rasputin gains the trust of the queen. Not only does he gain her trust, but he gains a major trust of the king who also wants the heir to live and wants, um, wants, you know, and sees Rasputin helping Alexei possibly go through these serious health issues due to his hemophilia. Yeah. And so this guy um, is, Gregory Rasputin is in, in a major way creating some instability because He's a weird, like, mystical figure. <laughs> He's probably a rapist. Um, it's It yeah. seems pretty well documented that he was uh, a rapist, maybe doing some, you know, weird drugs at the time. But he had a lot of power in the Russian royal family as they're going through this, this you know, stage of turmoil and they're entering into the First World War. And I think that's something to keep in mind, Um for the for the leaders of Russia because he really is in some sense one of the biggest powers in this war. Like mm-hmm. the, the the bigger a <coughs> say that he has in the Tsar's ear, uh, the, the more instable you would you would think Russia is. Even though Tsar Nicholas himself He's not, like, the most stable leader to begin with.
1: Not the most connected to his people, either. Yeah, you know? I
0: mean, that's the other thing. It, as you, as a king or, like, a dictator, you're going to have an echo chamber of people who support you. Yep. People who are, like, basically, you know, sucking your dick, verbally, you know, a mm-hmm. lot. Like, basically, like, oh, you know, my king, my lord, da-da-da-da, like, you're, you do everything so well, but when you know the peasants or the or the serfs or the people are you know going through turmoil you're not hearing from them directly you're hearing the people in your court saying oh you do such a great job like yeah da, da, da. you know so that's i think that's something to keep in mind with a lot of these figures that are more yes um, have have the uh, unilateral you know power in their country
1: yes Totally unrelated point that I want to make, and, and something I think to discuss. Um, fashion was very different back then, and the leaders, both governmental and, and military of the time, think I have some of the the best facial hair in all of history. Like all of these guys, it's yeah. just wild. Um, so my personal favorite is uh, Admiral von Tirpitz, who was uh, the the German naval admiral going going into World War One. He was this great two-pointed beard uh, that I, I wish I could grow something like it. Not a good man, excellent facial hair. But if,
0: I mean, just funny <laughs> shit facial hair. That's, yeah. The, the two-pointed beard,
1: it's like, what the yep. fuck are you doing? Um, also, you know, uh, Kitchener, who was the, the British basically war hero, who at this point is in Britain, uh, is in more of an advising role, but will go on to take direct control of, of the British forces in Europe. Uh, has probably one of the best mustaches in all of history. Uh, Tsar Nicholas, solid beard, yeah. very respectable. Um, probably one of the few guys that, if uh, you saw him in his facial hair, you know, say at Starbucks today, you wouldn't bat an eye. <laughs> um, on the other end of that spectrum, you, you've got a, a Wilhelm of Germany with the most absurd mustache uh he he definitely if you saw him at like a starbucks today would would probably turn heads
0: (laughs) that's that's that is interesting to think about but yeah there there's certainly uh there's certainly a lot of uh different in fashion from then to now for sure
1: sure yeah um
0: so so where we're at there you know september 1914 yes um germany and austria hungary are fighting a war on two fronts yes one uh fighting to the towards east. france in the east and one towards russia
1: oops oh, sorry flips yeah to the east towards russia yeah. and the west towards france
0: east towards russia west. Towards
1: i can't keep it straight either all right so turning back to the western front um this is where germany makes a series of mistakes that are really good and joffre Uh, makes a series of... And that's the French general. It's the French general of particularly good decisions. At this point. At this point. So Germany uh, had a really, really good August. Most of their military endeavors are going particularly well. And so they kind of have this belief that it's going to be gravy all the way to Paris. So their, you know, both their high level army commanders, um, all, all the way down to their unit commanders, aren't pushing as hard as they were before, because the, the French and the British just keep retreating and retreating and retreating and retreating, and and part of that is they have to. They're wildly outnumbered, um, but because Germany's resting on its laurels, they're not trying to capitalize on their advances and, and their victories in the way that they were before, and so. This gives Joffre time after he realizes that the primary German strike isn't coming across the German border into you know, in central France. It's rather coming from the north through Belgium. He at first thought it was a feint. It wasn't. The central attack was the feint. This gives him time to start pulling troops out of combat uh, along the German border and then as fast as he can routing entire divisions north to beef up uh, the, the, the two French armies that are already there. And so, while he is doing this, the French armies are continuing to retreat, but they're not retreating quite as fast as they were. In part because now there are more men at play. New armies are being formed; they're able to start stepping into the gaps. At the same time, uh, Sir John has basically been told by the British high command, "You need to play nice with the French. You you can't you know you can't just keep." Treating you have to take your stand.
0: You can't keep fucking them over. Exactly, and it's
1: like you don't have to like the French, but you do need to play nice with them. I mean,
0: it's your last name to begin with.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So, and and reading about it does sometimes get confusing because it's the French and French, and yeah, the one's British and the other is a bunch of French guys. Um, so finally, France has enough numbers that they're able to stop Germany and start counterattacking, And they end up along the banks of a river, whose name I should totally remember, uh, but I can't. Uh, and, and this is basically where the German attack starts to stall. They can't keep pushing forward. Um, and the the ruler uh, von Moltke, who was the, the, basically the supreme German commander at this point, it, he starts to lose his nerve. He's experiencing failure in a way that
0: Supreme he, German commander, like, of the Of, the, of the military, okay.
1: yeah. Um, the Landwehr, I think, was the... The river? The, no, the term for the German military at that time. Okay. Because I know World War II a little bit better. I keep wanting to call it the Wehrmacht, but that it was not the Wehrmacht until oh, Hitler. Uh, <clears throat> so... <clears throat> And this also too is where the nature of the war so at this point it's been a war of maneuver uh it's been a war of running conflict uh there's just absurd stuff where it's like so at the start of the war in august uh, the french had very few heavy field guns because they were unmanly you know if you have weapons that can shoot over the line of the horizon where you can't even see your enemy that doesn't seem you know particularly sporting so they only had light you know, they were to to mid-range field guns, so that you could actually <coughs> stare your enemy in the eyes. You're firing over what's called open sights. Um, cavalry was still a thing at this time. There were, and not just to the the British Expeditionary Force had cavalry, but these guys were a more modernized cavalry, where they were mostly trained to ride horses to move quickly, but then would dismount and fight with rifles, like what you would think of a modern infantry. In it. Uh, the French. And I believe the Russians and the Germans still had Hussar units, which were, you know, like uh, the mounted cavalry with sabers. With a, and you remember throughout the history of warfare, basically into the 20th century, you would use your cavalry to either harass your enemy's lines. So you're, you're uh, launching your cavalry at the flanks to try and force them to bunch or to break split units apart. Or you would especially use cavalry in retreat. So a Napoleonic battle... Um, would be the two armies would face usually at some point one of them would break and run and I mean this is true all the way back to you know Alexander the Great Your two armies face at one point one of them would probably break and run assuming you're not fighting in a city like in retreat exactly when the other army starts running you send your cavalry after him and the cavalry's job is to keep them running for as long as possible and to kill as many men as you possibly can and Again, up until World War One, most of the lo- combat losses uh, in in war would have been through these types of, of retreats.
0: Like once the once the line breaks and the cavalry is is chasing right. them, that's when the real damage is done.
1: When there's a route, that's where your casualty numbers go through the roof. But if you if you're standing line to line, just lobbing shots back and forth at each other, um, again. You're fighting with swords, with bows and arrows, with relatively inaccurate low, musketry. Low accurate muskets. Yeah, it's like are things good? No, it's bad. I would would I ever want to be a part of that? Absolutely not. But I would much rather, if I had to stand shoulder to shoulder, I would rather do it in Napoleon or before than in August 1914. Um, now, however, so after, so again, Schlieffen has stalled. Uh, the whole point of the Schlieffen Plan was four to six weeks were' at Paris. It is now four to six weeks in and they're stuck uh, somewhere between, I think it was like 60 miles north uh, and a little bit east of Paris. And that's bad news for the Germans and at this point guys are starting to dig in and the nature of the war is changing it's gone from a war of maneuver on the western front to something more static this is where trenches are showing up for the first time Uh, by this point too you know the importance of artillery has been realized and so it's no longer how can we fire you know over open sites but it's we're firing long-range barrages against each other and by december 1914 for sure that in, in might have to deal with that part of the war at a, another session yeah um you know that by the end of 1914 the trenches the no man's land the barbed wire you know the the artillery duels all of that is, is stuck and it basically won't change again until 1918 and the only reason it does change is because by 1918 germany has become so denuded of resources and manpower and is so worn out that they can't hold the lines they can no longer counter-attack to retake and so that's when it turns back into a war of maneuver because the Allies are able to capitalize on their gains.
0: So to kind of summarize mm. where we're at, mm. what happens is the the German Austrian Hungary army mm. starts the war with this idea that they're going to quickly invade and especially on the Western Front, yep. In mm. get get Paris and at that point they're going to force uh, negotiations. Force negotiations. There you go. Mm. But um what what ends up happening is their aggressive um attacks um get stuck um along kind of the uh, it's a river valley river yep. valley and it kind of barely into France let me pull out a map and uh, and they are starting to engage in less of a attack retreat type of warfare and more into a trench warfare where they're just kind of stuck uh, on this line of war shooting at each other. Yes, along these d- like dug out trenches, and and the armies are basically just standing line in line in these trenches, just fighting one. Another.
1: Yes., uh, the Marne, actually, this would be the first Battle of the Marne. Okay, uh, which I feel like an idiot for not remembering that. but so, okay, is that, is that the river? Yes. okay. <clears throat> right? Or is it down. Oh boy. <laughs> Don't ask me these questions. God, dude. Oh my gosh. Professor Allen. But, but basically they're
0: they're stuck their attack is is it's being stalled. stalled yes. and they are starting to engage into trench warfare.
1: Yes. Okay. And so they're the last thing that I want to talk about before our time is up today is there's, there's two things. Um so one is what happens at the marm and the second is what's called the race to the sea. Okay. Um and I can can summarize both pretty quickly oh crap remind me to talk about supply lines as well because okay. that'll also become important for the rest of the war all right so the first battle of the marne why is this significant in the scope of not just world war one but the 20th century european war that starts in 1914 and really doesn't end until may of 1945 so von moltke remember is is your german commander of the Landwehr, the the german army mm-hmm. um and i apologize to other military historians if i've Got that off. Um, (laughs) uh, He is losing his nerve at this point. Okay. So Germany has two armies on the Marne. There is a bit of a gap between them. Von Moltke is back behind the lines a significant distance. He, at a critical juncture, the German armies are under a tremendous amount of pressure from both the British and the French. The BEF is still in the fight at this point, comporting itself very well. They are pressing across the river valley in the German positions. Germany doesn't have the men to hold the lines. They're starting to get overrun. So uh, these reports are coming in. Von Moltke sends, I believe he's a lieutenant colonel, uh, which is a, it's a higher up military position, but it's not that high. And basically says, I want you to go to both of these armies to do what needs to be done but then to report to me so we can make decisions this lieutenant colonel takes that is more or less unilateral permission to run the war how he sees fits so he gets to the first army they give him the report things are going badly and he's like you need to pull back he gets to the next army and he's like hey this other army is pulling back you also need to retreat uh so that, we can, so that we don't have a, a salient. And so again, remember, a salient is a bulge in the lines. And the problem with salience um, is that it means that rather than fighting, you know, if you think of a flat line, you're fighting on one front, if you start to bulge that forward, now the enemy, rather than being able to attack you just from ahead, can also start attacking your sides. And from the Napoleonic, the Franco-Prussian, the Japanese wars, all these commanders were taught that the way that you win is through turn, what's called turning the enemy's flanks and then envelopment. So basically, you force the unit to start folding in on itself, and then eventually you meet your own forces behind them, and they're encircled, and, and basically you can either annihilate them or force them to surrender. Yeah. <clears throat> so the Germans don't want a salient. The second army this lieutenant colonel visits is actually starting to push ahead into France and or into the French forces and and is doing well is it t- it's not totally clear like could they have capitalized on those games could they have actually punched through the french lines maybe who can say uh but they were advancing this lieutenant colonel says no i need you to stop advancing and i need you to retreat so that we can keep our lines flat you know uh basically
0: to avoid the bubble exactly
1: to avoid a salient. <clears throat> and so doing this effectively ends schlieffen because at this point, this is the German armies are now in retreat, and it's not a rout. It's not, you know, it's a well-fought, very professional pullback to consolidate the German lines. This is the beginning of the stab in the back myth that would lead to uh, World War II. So, in the after World War, during World War One, but especially in the interwar period. There was this belief that Germany didn't lose World War One, that rather they were stabbed in the back by fill in your blank of whoever you want to hate on, you know. And a lot of people are like, "What well, was the German army?" And then you know Hitler comes and he's like, "It was the German army because of the Jews," um, and and you know it's this this terrible and historically false narrative that Germany would have won the war very quickly had it not been for The influence of
0: this lieutenant commander
1: fill in the blank you know Um, basically whatever individual or people you want to hate on at some point got filled in in that interwar period and so and it was the that belief and that that disquiet that Germany was robbed of something that they deserved is what kind of paved the way politically uh, for somebody like a Hitler to then come to power in, in the late 20s and in early 30s. And so even though we at this point are, all, are like only about two months into World War I, this is already starting to sow the seeds of what would then be World War II. Okay. But, I mean, virtually nobody knows that yet. Um, so then... The race to the sea, last really important thing of World War One, and there's a lot that goes into it, but really what it is, is it's a series of actions from the Marne all the way north to Ypres, which is on the, uh, the coast of the English, Ypres, and then north to the, the Channel Coast. It is Germany trying to turn the French, the Allied lines, so that they can start pushing for Paris again, and it is... The Allies trying to turn the German lines to get behind them so that they can, you know, punch. So um, they're
0: basically racing north. To they're try racing to flank north each to other. try
1: to outflank each other, and there's a series of major battles that are fought as uh, each tries to outdo the other. Uh, but but it ends with then your your static line from. So they
0: basically tie. Yep. On their on their race to the <laughs> sea, and it it creates this. It, like dually like flat line
1: it creates the western front Okay. at that point and so again here we are early winter 1914 there is no more war of maneuver on the western front it has become you know your static trench lines so last point that I want to make today is about supply lines which yes. is also important Uh because so again from the end of 1914 basically until I think like late spring 1918 How what battles are fought? What is done? The types of weapons that are used to fight the guys that are commanding this all change all are very variable But where your lines are Basically within you know 20 or 30 miles of each other one way and the other and so as a, as a modern person looking back you're like why couldn't they you know couldn't they punch through why couldn't they they get through the other guy's lines you know how come they got stuck in trenches for like four years and it has to do with the technology that was available to them so remember you know airplanes brand new automobiles pretty much brand new um you didn't have the technology to transport and then also to supply uh and an army as it's advancing deep into enemy territory and this w- in world war one the defender always had the advantage because they had the shortest supply lines and also because they were fighting within the protection of their own artillery so <clears throat> you know if you think of your trenches facing each other let's say i'm the british expeditionary force i launch an attack against the german lines i might win and let's say i capture their you know i managed to break their lines ooh, even say along a 3 mile front which would be a pretty significant victory because artillery was so long ranged the way that both armies would set up their artillery was so that it covered the enemy's trenches but was out of range of the enemy's artillery which meant that by the time i've punched through the german trenches i am at the extreme range of my artillery but i am at a very very happy range for the German artillery. Yeah. In addition to that, <clears throat> how do I get enough troops through? Because it's you know it's a moonscape in between the trenches. We don't have trucks. We don't have you know supply airplanes. You know it's it and horses at this point too are kind of useless. Even if I manage to capture and hold the German lines, withstand the counter bombardment, uh, withstand the German counter attack you know cuz obviously okay so we push these guys back but it doesn't mean they're all dead it just means that they are like <sighs> taking a deep breath and then they're going to start fighting right back and throughout the war on both fronts uh, actually both world wars the germans are notorious for fighting extremely competent and effective counterattacks uh, and and this is why and, you know in world war 2 it took russia as long as it it did once they got the initiative in, uh, in Russia and then Eastern Europe to fight them back to Berlin because the Germans are, are competent counter-attackers in both wars. Mm. Um, so And then also too, as I talked about earlier, again I've taken the German lines but I've created a salient. The Germans can counter-attack from three sides. I have to defend from three sides at the extreme range or out of range of my artillery, whereas the Germans have the complete home field advantage.
0: Or vice versa. Exactly. If, going if, the
1: other way. Yeah. Exactly. And so... <clears throat> What you end up with is a situation where you'll have local victories, but there's no, there's just no way to capitalize on them. You can't punch through to actually take out, you know, any of the the supporting infrastructure or, or start to to move the war again.
0: So the Western Front is building a strong stalemate, stalemate, yes. and no one really anticipated, but is becoming. What what the war is shaping into?
1: Exactly, and it won't break until Germany basically loses the supplies and the manpower to hold that stalemate, uh, which which won't happen until so like
0: reinforcements and supplies getting to the line it, it is going to be like the last line of defense. If you if you lose the ability to supply the line yes. to hold that line, then that is going to be how you lose the
1: war. And like- artillery coverage, yeah, exactly. If you, if you lose your artillery and you lose your supply lines, that's it. Um, and, and a note, quick note on artillery as well. In the movies, even in 1917, which is a great film, one of my biggest disappointments is they don't show a 1917 bombardment accurately. Uh, so in the movies, it's always kaboom, kaboom, kaboom. If you read the accounts of the guys that fought on the front lines, especially in the 1916, 1917, 1918, so many guns were firing so many shells that the guys said it started sounding like a drum roll mm-hmm. like duh, 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 And then eventually it would just turn into a roar. You couldn't distinguish individual explosions. so many shells were hitting the ground so close together at once. and there'd just be like this wall of dirt. Uh, that you would watch walk either you know walk away from you if it's your bombardment moving to the enemy lines, or walk towards you if the other guys about to come attack you, which sounds awesome in the like, terrifying as well. the literal sense of that word, uh, but also absolutely terrifying. Uh, so,
0: yeah, that's all right. It. So we made it to about the end of nineteen fourteen. Yep. Um, all right. Well, that concludes our part one of our. <laughs> world war one series that we're going to be embarking on um, and yeah thanks for tuning in guys
1: thanks for having me frank
0: uh yeah i have very much enjoyed uh enjoyed learning uh a lot uh, a lot of the tactical stuff going on in world war one and uh look forward to to learning more thanks thanks again kirk absolutely all right